Verena Ann Winnie Davis was the youngest daughter of Confederate President Jefferson Davis and his second wife, Verena Howell Davis. Winnie's birth in June 1864 was hailed as a blessing by war-weary Southerners. Her arrival seemed a good omen that might signify future victory. After the war, Winnie, who spent her early life as a genteel refugee and European expatriate, was christened the daughter of the Confederacy. This role was bestowed upon her by a Southern society trying to come to terms with defeat, particularly idolized by such organizations as the United Confederate Veterans and the United Daughters of the Confederacy, Winnie became an icon of the lost cause, eclipsing even her father in popularity. Her controversial engagement in 1890 to a Northern lawyer, whose grandfather was a famous abolitionist, shocked her friends, family, and the Southern groups that idolized her. She later moved to New York City, where she became a writer, her family friend, and newspaper baron Joseph Pulitzer at The World. Despite her blooming literary career, the young woman was unable to escape the looming legacy of the Lost Cause. Winnie Davis, Daughter of the Lost Cause, is the first published biography of this little-known woman who unwittingly became the symbolic female figure of the defeated South. Heath Hartage Lee, a native Richmonder and St. Catherine's girl, now lives in Des Moines, Iowa with her husband and two children. She holds a BA in history with honors from Davidson College, where she and I were students at the same time. Oh, I know it's a small world. <laughs> and an MA in French language and literature from the University of Virginia. She began her museum career at the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina, as the Director of Education and Programs. Heath has since worked as a consultant for Southern House Museums, such as Stratford Hall and Minokin Plantation. And she has also worked in the Midwest Museum community as the coordinator of the History Speaker Series for Salisbury House and Gardens, a 1920s house museum in Des Moines. Heath has written for numerous magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Winnie Davis, Daughter of the Lost Cause, is her first book and is, of course, available in our museum shop, where she would be happy to sign it for you after the lecture. So please join me in a warm Richmond welcome home to Heath Lee, who will speak to us today about Winnie Davis, Daughter of the Lost Cause. Thank you, Paul, for that very, very nice um, intro. And I'm telling on myself that he is younger than I am. <laughs> he was at Davidson. He's, I think, two years behind me. Is that right? Uh, I won't tell you our age, but that gives you an idea. So thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I want to thank you all. This is a great crowd. Thank you for coming out in the summer, hot Virginia summertime, to hear about Winnie and my new book, Winnie Davis, Daughter of the Lost Cause. So I did want to thank Paul, especially Paul Levengood, the director here. He was the very first person who approached me about speaking about my book. Uh, the first person really anywhere. This was several years ago. And he said, we want to do your book launch here. And I said, great, that is fabulous. So I want to thank him for that especially. 
I also want to thank the VHS staff, Nelson Langford, Graham Dozier, Lizzie Oglesby, uh, Jameson Davis and Lee Shepard. And I'm going to give a particular shout out to Jameson and Lee for the gorgeous photo they did of Winnie's portrait, which became the cover of my book. And many people have said, oh, I just want to buy that for a coffee table book. I don't really care what it's about. <laughs> so I was like, uh, thanks, I think. But um, anyway, so I, great thanks to Jameson and Lee for their aesthetic, beautiful taste. And they did just a gorgeous job photographing it for um, my publisher. A special thank you to Jeb and Wheezy Stewart, who perhaps I hope are in the room today. Jeb um, is an old friend, and he wrote the foreword to my book, which is poignant and beautiful and just points out some really interesting connections about General Jeb and Winnie and the special kind of bond that they shared. So thank you, Jeb and Wheezy. And finally, I want to thank my friend Graham Basto, who came by yesterday and loaned me a newspaper article about her ancestors in Chester, South Carolina, who provided shelter for Verena Davis and her children, including Winnie, when they fled Richmond in April of 1865. Graham's relative, Mrs. Isaiah Mobley, had recently lost her only son, who was only 16, in the Civil War when Verena and her children stayed with her as they were fleeing Richmond. Mrs. Mobley gladly welcomed the Confederate First Lady into her house, and I quote from the wonderful article, Mrs. Mobley herself placed the baby Winnie in each of her daughter's arms, admonishing them never to forget that they had held in their arms the baby girl of their beloved president. So this was so poignant to me, and just great timing, Graham. Thank you, because you brought it in yesterday. It's amazing these things I get from private collections in Richmond. And it, it just, that article proved to me that Winnie, even as a baby, was like a bomb for Southerners who had lost others in the war. Um, with Jeb Stewart, she sort of was seen as almost a replacement. When he died, everyone was so depressed. And then Winnie was born a short time later, and she was a bomb for those people still so torn up about the war and still involved in the war. So that article really, really brought that home to me. And it also shows she was the daughter of the Confederacy even as a little baby. So thank you, Graham, for that. I first want to read, to get started, just a very short snippet from the preface of my book, and then we'll get into some wonderful pictures um, of the Davis family and Winnie. So this is from my preface. What is it about Verena Ann Winnie Davis, youngest daughter of Confederate President Jefferson Davis and Verena Howell Davis, an appointed daughter of the Confederacy, that has had such a hold on me for the past 20-odd years? Even in Richmond, Virginia, where Winnie and I were both born, she is a half-forgotten symbol of the lost cause, known primarily for her scandalous romance with the northern grandson of a famous abolitionist following the Civil War. Winnie's 1897 portrait by Virginia artist John P. Walker, which you see right here, has hung in various clubs and museums in Richmond for many years. I remember seeing this image as a teenager and wondering about this beautiful lady. Who was she and why was her expression so melancholy? In the painting, Winnie is dressed in a white lace gown that drapes beautifully over her slim figure. She is portrayed with dark hair and deep blue eyes, a diamond tiara in her hair and a red ribbon badge pinned to her bodice. 
Her regal bearing suggested to me that she was 19th century royalty of some sort. I wondered for her for a number of years, about, wondered about her in an offhand way, not bothering to do any research on her until college. By my senior year at Davidson College in 1991, I began to outgrow the confines of the academic cage. Having spent the spring of my junior year abroad in France, taken all the required classes, had my share of failed romances, and exhausted the extremely limited shopping options in downtown Davidson, North Carolina, <laughs> and believe me, they were limited. It was very sad. Um, I decided to devote myself entirely to my thesis on Winnie Davis. As I began to delve into Winnie's background through personal letters, diaries, newspaper accounts, and brief references to her in Southern history books, I became fascinated with her tragic story. As part of my thesis work, I convinced my professors to send me to an academic conference being held at her family home, Beauvoir, in Mississippi. I do not remember much about the conference at all but I do remember the dresses. Beauvoir had a collection of Winnie's dresses, elaborate 19th century gowns for both day and evening. The docent leading the tour that day picked me out of the crowd and said, now you could wear her clothes easily. You are just her exact same size. Of course, nothing would have pleased me more that day than to be able to try on all her clothes just to see how they fit. In a sense, that is exactly what I have been doing the past 20 years. So let me tell you a little bit more about Winnie, but that's how I happened upon her story, and she just was so haunting. If you look at the portrait, we'll take a look at that first. She's so haunting and melancholy. There's something clearly sad about her expression, but that beautiful dress, it's, for me, it's always the clothes. So <laughs> those who know me will, will know this, but that was what it was. It's just, um, that said a lot to me, and it's a very representative picture as well. There's a lot of Confederate symbolism in the picture, which I'll talk about. Uh, first, the white dress. So the daughter of the Confederacy is sort of seen as the vestal virgin of the Confederacy. She's pure and unspoiled. She's always shown wearing white. She also has a red ribbon badge pinned on her bodice. This is from the United Confederate Veterans, some decorations from that. And then if you look closely, you see the broken staff representing the Confederacy, broken but not torn apart. And you have forget-me-nots. Those are the flowers there which represent um, the Confederacy. Again, don't forget the Confederacy and the suffering um, that happened during the war. So lots of symbolism in this portrait. Uh, it's by John P. Walker, 1897. It's a posthumous portrait. I hope I look that good when I'm dead. She looks great. <laughs> and she was really pretty, but this might be just a little exaggeration. Now, these two threatened to derail my entire book on Winnie because they're totally fascinating. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and Verena Davis, his second wife. Now, I, does anyone know who Jefferson Davis's first wife was? Thank you. I am impressed. That's excellent. Sarah Knox Taylor, known as Noxie Taylor. She was Zachary Taylor, President Zachary Taylor's daughter. She was feisty and pretty and just very intelligent. Jefferson Davis fell in love with her immediately. Zachary Davis opposed the match, did not want them to get married because he didn't want his daughter to have a military life like 
his own wife had had. He also thought Jefferson was kind of uppity, kind of, you know, difficult. And the two men didn't really get along that well um, at this point. So he didn't want them to get married, but as young people will do, they decided to get married anyway, against the wishes of the Taylor family. The, um, Zachary and his wife were not present at the wedding. They got married. They were madly in love. And three months later, Sarah Knox Taylor dies of malaria in Jefferson Davis's arms. So um, a very short-lived marriage. Um, Sarah Knox Taylor was always his ideal wife because, of course, she had not had time to nag him or <laughs> there were no dishes done. I mean, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of the ideal marriage in some ways. So, so, of course, you know, Sarah becomes the sainted Sarah, as Verena calls her, and Verena is forced on their honeymoon to go visit Sarah's grave. So think about that. So Verena was really, you know, the, the, the marriage did not start well. The second marriage with Verena. Verena was um, a Mississippian um, from a very a prominent family. She was highly, highly educated, very unusual for that time. Um, and her, gr her grandfather was actually the governor of New Jersey at one point. So she had both northern and southern ties, very sophisticated. Um, and Joseph Davis, Jefferson's brother, actually set them up because after Sarah Knox Taylor died, Jefferson Davis went into mourning and really was a hermit. For about eight years, he ran his plantation with his brother Briarfield. He didn't go out. Um, he read a lot, and he just was just so distraught about that early death of his wife that he wasn't really interested in, in other women for a long time. But I think Joseph finally said, you gotta get out. So I'm setting you up with Verena. Um, they quickly, they courted, they fell in love, but the um, strong personalities that they both had were not really conducive to them being married. So if they had had a marriage counselor today, I think they might have said, you might wanna think about this, but they didn't. They seemed on paper like it was a good match, um, but they had epic battles for dominance in the marriage at which Verena always lost. Little Joe, and I bet a lot of you may <coughs> know this story about Little Joe Davis. So he just looks like trouble, doesn't he? I mean, he is the cutest thing ever. He's adorable, but he has this little mischievous look in his eyes. Um, and sadly, Little Joe was known, uh, Verena also not very politically correct with her children, called him the best, her best and brightest child. So, and she did this a lot. She liked to label everybody in the family as being the smart one, the pretty one. Joe was her best and her, her brightest, so she said. He was sort of going to be the hope of the Davises in their old age. Um, in this photo, he's probably about five years old. So right towards the end of the war in um, eight, April of 1864, Verena goes out to the customs house to take Jefferson his lunch. He never eats. He's super stressed out, as anyone would be, about the Civil War going on, his role in it. Um, he doesn't eat, so Verena is always very nurturing and takes him lunch. While she is out, Jeff Jr., one of their older boys, gets out on the balcony of uh, the music or the White House of the Confederacy, which um, was not a good idea. I'll show you a picture in a second. And he starts balancing on the top of the rail. You know how boys are, and 
At this point, I'll show you the railing. So here's the, the White House of the Confederacy, which I'm sure many of you have been to. And so Jeff Jr. goes out the window, he's teetering on the rail, and little five-year-old Joe climbs out the window, their nurse Catherine is not watching, um, and imitates his brother. Let me show you where the balcony was. This is where it is now. So the balcony is about 10 feet from the ground, and there's also kind of a sub-basement here. So originally, so you, you, they were coming out here, out the balcony, and then if you go, let's see if my laser pointer, yes, will work. So this below, um, this brick pavement has been built up to here, but this is, you've got another drop here, maybe five more feet. So little Joe falls from here all the way to the, this sub-basement. Um, and he is, so, you know, that happens. And poor little Joe um, is hurt very seriously. His leg is twisted. His, he's just, you know, I won't go into the details. It's pretty, it's all in the book. Um, pretty horrifying. And the Irish nurse Catherine, nowhere to be found. So Maggie Davis, um, the oldest Davis daughter, is screaming, running all over the neighborhood, trying to find help. Fortunately, a Confederate officer comes along and helps, tries to help revive Joe. There's some African-American servants who hold him and try to, to help him with some camphor. And he revives briefly. The parent, frantic parents are sent for. They come home. They hold him in their arms. And 45 minutes later, he's, he's dead. So the Davises are devastated. This is really their favorite child um, at the time. And he is gone. Uh, Verena is six weeks uh about six weeks from giving birth to Winnie. So she, Winnie has not even been born yet, but she's already sort of fallen into this family sort of um, situation where she becomes a replacement, not only for Joe, this dead brother, she has another brother, Samuel Emery, who has died of measles uh, several years before. So this is the second boy the Davises have lost and Winnie is born into this highly charged emotional atmosphere. And I tell you this because it just sets up her place in the family and shows you a little bit about why the dynamics in the family are the way they are. So this also kind of says it all. Um, very unusual portrait for the 19th century. I, I know many of you have seen portraits that are very stiff, very posed, and very formal. And this, to me, is such an intimate portrait of a mother and a child. This is Verena and Winnie. So Winnie, the replacement child, quickly becomes the one that Verena bonds with the most completely. She fills a, a huge void in her life when um, little Joe dies, and she's already had Samuel die. So they become very, very bonded, perhaps too tightly, um, I avoid using, you know, new psychological terms in the book, but we might term it codependent at some point. It becomes that way. We aren't quite there yet, but they both become highly attached to each other, and particularly for Verena, it becomes very hard to let Winnie be an independent person and to do what she needs to do. I love this photo. It reminds it reminds me, you know, I know uh, many of you may have um, children or grandchildren. I hope you don't have this problem, but I do. I have a, an 11-year-old who loves this horrible show called Dance Moms. 
if anyone is watching Dance Moms, all the mothers dress their little girls up in these awful outfits for dance shows. It's like a beauty pageant. This also kind of reminds me of Jean Benet a little bit. So, but I show it to you just to illustrate that point. Verena really became kind of a classic stage mother over time with Winnie because Winnie was so bright, so smart, and she was, you know, reciting Shakespeare when she was eight, was memorizing these long poems, was writing these sort of epic stories at a very young age. She was very precocious and very talented, but she also spent a lot of time with adults. She didn't spend as nearly as much time with her peers, um, not nearly as much as, say, her brothers had or her older sister Maggie had. So she becomes almost like an only child, also because of her age. She's much younger than the other siblings, and she becomes Verena's focus. So she does like to dress her up and kind of parade her around like, like a prize pony at times. And I love this picture, Teenage Winnie. It really doesn't change a whole lot. I, I looked at some funny pictures of my sister Morgan, who's here, and myself when we were about this age. Say she's about 16 here, and, and everyone looks sullen at that point. Like, you just don't, you know, you're not going to look happy, even if you are, because then your parents would be happy, and that would be a huge mistake. So <laughs> this is when she's maybe rebelling a little bit against Verena and that tight bond that they have. Um, she does have the legitimate reason to be a little sullen here because she also, in addition to being a teenager, which makes you sullen to begin with, she was sent away to Germany to boarding school when she was quite young. She stays there for five years until she's 17, so she goes to boarding school about, about 12 years old. She goes to this place in Karlsruhe, and it's described as just a forbidding kind of granite structure, a very strict, very Spartan kind of rigorous existence, cold baths, and, you know, she'd wake up in the morning and the ice in her pitcher would be frozen solid. It was very um, Spartan. Kind of reminds me of what you read about, like, Prince Charles and Prince Philip sending him to Gordonston to sort of toughen him up. So the Davises sent her away for several reasons. Um, they, the big reason being that they were still getting death threats since Jefferson Davis had been president of the Confederacy. We know how the Civil War ended. So, um, you know, things were still precarious for him, and he was always very worried about his family being involved in this. So they felt like for her own protection they should send her away. Um, also because uh, at the time when Jefferson Davis sent her away, it, it was a, sort of the thing in the upper classes to send your daughters away to, to finishing school if you could afford it. And they always had a little help from Confederate sympathizers and admirers, so they were able to do that. But another reason I dug a little deeper, two other reasons she went. One, there's a lot of um, research out there saying Verena had basically had a nervous breakdown at this point. She had lost um, so many of her children she just couldn't cope anymore. She was having issues, physical and some mental issues. And the most interesting reason is they thought Winnie was stubborn. Imagine a 16-year-old being stubborn. Can't imagine. And that this was not acceptable. And, you know, Jefferson Davis did not like that. He wanted, he was very of his time, very, you know, 19th century um, male thought that this was not acceptable, and Verena, though she herself was not shy about giving her opinions, uh, was not submissive at all. 
which was the, one of the big causes of the rift in the marriage between Verena and Jefferson. But I think that Verena knew that if Winnie was not submissive, did not go along with sort of a patriarchal, patriarchal society, that she was going to have a really hard time. So they jointly agreed they were going to crush this out of her, which is really too bad, but there's a lot of letters back and forth about Winnie's stubbornness and her independence, and they basically wanted to crush it out of her. And I think that the school sadly kind of succeeded in doing that. That was the downside. The upside is she became known as one of the most educated women in the South. She was fluent in German and French, beautiful artist, wonderful musician, very sophisticated, knew her European history backwards and forwards, but knew nothing about American history and particularly nothing about the South because her parents deliberately did not want her to know about Southern history. So you can imagine what kind of child this creates when she returns to the States and she never feels like she fits in with her peers because she doesn't. She's um, a stranger in her own land, essentially, when she gets back. However, that doesn't linger too long, um, feeling separate from, from her peers because she goes back to Beauvoir, lives with her family. Beauvoir is the Davis family home in Mississippi that um, is given to Jefferson Davis by a fervent admirer called Sarah Dorsey. So eventually Davis um, inherits Beauvoir. He pays for it in full, but he inherits uh, Beauvoir and all the property. He and Verena live there together, and Winnie comes to live with them. It's very isolated. Even if you go now, have many of you been? Who's been to Beauvoir before? Oh, there are quite a few, quite a few of you that have been to Beauvoir. So, you know, even now, it's, it's, I don't know if isolated is the word. It's got a lot of gambling establishments and things like that. Um, but when she was there, of course, it was extremely isolated. You just had the alligators and the herons and not a whole lot else. Now, it was fairly close to New Orleans. So you would go up to New Orleans for your social life, for balls, Winnie made her debut in New Orleans, and, and there was a lot of, of um, interaction socially there. But she was pretty isolated. It was pretty boring. Um, she became kind of her father's secretary. He had recently written his memoirs, and she took over from Verena a lot of, his, uh, a lot of the secretarial duties. And then faithfully, she decides in 1886, or I think her father decided for her actually, that she was going to go on a train trip with him throughout the South to dedicate um, Confederate monuments across the South. And I should have earlier given a shout out to my UDC ladies who are awesome, and I saw a number of them here. But um, UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, these were the people, not the men, that raised the money for these monuments. They, the men couldn't sell a brownie at a bake sale. Is one of the uh, great, I, I'm paraphrasing Caroline Janney. I don't think she put it quite that way. But she has a great, wonderful book about the um, UDC ladies and the Ladies Memorial Associations. And the women were the big fundraisers at the time. So... They um, had all these wonderful monuments that they, they paid to have put up, and they asked Jefferson Davis and Winnie to come dedicate them. So they're on a train. They're going all over the South, and one day near West Point, Georgia, a really hot, steamy April day, Jefferson Davis becomes ill on the train. So he's in the back, and General John B. Gordon, you know, well-known Confederate uh, military hero, 
he is also a wonderful politician, and he sees Winnie. She's young, she's attractive, articulate. Not that they, they really didn't care if she was articulate because she never really had to say anything at these gather, Confederate gatherings. But um, John whisks her out to the back of the train and says, I present to you the daughter of the Confederacy. This was totally random, off the top of his head. She was really a stand-in for her father, but the name stuck, and the, the crowd outside the train went wild. There were, like, rebel yells all over the place. The band is playing Dixie, and they see there are all these Confederate veterans who've come out to see Davis, and instead they just see this beautiful young girl who kind of, to them, starts to represent the future of the South. So she picks up that name, the, the daughter of the Confederacy. She becomes a symbol of the lost cause of this sort of romantic notion of the South before the war. And what's so interesting, if you remember, she's essentially German. She doesn't know American history. She doesn't really understand it. Um, she's sort of like, hmm, this is, this is kind of cool, but she doesn't really get it. So you've got really one of the most unlikely people except for her pedigree. Obviously, she's Confederate royalty being Jefferson Davis's youngest daughter. And she's unmarried, um, which is another kind of requirement for women who become figureheads at the veterans reunions. They're, they're basically vestal virgins of the Confederacy. Once you get married, you're out. You're not wearing that white dress anymore. You're done. So her sister Maggie, you know, never got to really do much of this because she was married already. So. Oh, and I did forget, I'm going to go back one second. I did forget to tell you the other thing I thought was interesting is this is when advertising starts to really develop with photography. So you see Winnie's image. She's like the Confederate it girl, like the clear bow of the Confederacy, and she's on postcards everywhere. But I found her image on things like ice cream. My favorite was liver tonic, Winnie Davis liver tonic. I don't know what that's for, but it sold really well, apparently. Um, they, candy, and, and of course the poor girl didn't get paid a dime for this stuff. You know, this, they just appropriate your image for whatever they want to sell. And her image sold a lot. It was very, she just had that very 19th century Victorian heroine look that was so popular. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little in, in just a minute. Then we get Alfred Wilkinson. So this is when it gets very, very interesting. So Winnie is going along, and she's the daughter of the Confederacy, and she's being feted and, you know, celebrated all over the South. Winnie's not a big party girl. She's pretty serious, pretty artistic. So she's really doing that more for her parents, um, for approval, not because she herself is, is really that into it. But she's game to go along with this. And then in the late, in a, about 1889, she meets Alfred Wilkinson. She is in Syracuse, New York visiting friends of her parents from, uh, these are old friends from the 1850s when um, Davis was a senator um, up from Mississippi. He was in D.C., was very powerful, very well known, and had a lot of their northern friends that they kept um, for their entire life. So at this point, you know, they're starting to reconcile a little bit with the north, um, some southerners, not many, but some. And uh, Verena Davis always kept her northern friends. So they had gone to Syracuse, Verena with her, to um, stay at the, at the home of a friend, the Emerys. And at this, they have a ball for uh, Verena and Winnie to celebrate uh, their trip. And in walks 
six foot tall, handsome, Harvard graduate, Alfred Wilkinson. He was a classmate of Teddy Roosevelt's at Harvard. He is dreamy and a catch. So he walks in, he sees Winnie, and it's love at first sight. They're both apparently, from all accounts, just instantly smitten with each other. And everybody thinks Alfred is, is himself a lost cause. He's 28. Oh my God, he's so old and he isn't married yet. I can't imagine. And so, you know, at that time, that was really old. So um, the girls had all said, oh, he's never going to get married. Well, he found the one that he was interested in. And, and Winnie was very, very attracted to him. They dated, they courted all over Syracuse. Um, and we know that Alfred is a northerner, so that's that's maybe a strike against him, but that can potentially be overcome. That doesn't seem to be that big of a deal at first. But, oh, and there's Winnie, and I just love that together. It's just so Victorian and, and gorgeous. I love these photos, and, and thank you to um, the Museum of the Confederacy. Had kind of had the best photos, so I kind of ransacked their collection. But the Valentine had some great ones. I think VHS had some. Um, and got just many beautiful photos. So here's the Romeo of the North, the Juliet of the South. And there's Miss Winnie again. Okay, and so here's when it gets even more deliciously interesting. So um, this is Samuel Joseph May, who was Fred's grandfather, was an abolitionist. And he was a really, he wasn't just like a, you know, closet abolitionist or run-of-the-mill abolitionist. He is up there with Garrison, all these famous ones, um, very, very well known, very, you know, very strong in his beliefs. And the Mays are part of the May Alcott family. So Louisa May Alcott um, is related to, and I have to look at the genealogy, but is a cousin of Fred's mother, I think a first or second cousin. So we know the Alcotts are all very strong abolitionists. So Winnie has picked someone that is not only a northerner, his grandfather's an abolitionist, and they court on the upper porch of, of this house, which is Samuel May's home. And this um, sort of porch that you see, the underground here, is where Samuel May hid slaves on the Underground Railroad. This was a big stop on the railroad, and this is where they court. So it's all very, very ironic and very interesting. This has not even crossed either of their minds at this point that this could be a problem. It just, they really haven't really thought about it. They just like each other, which I think is very typical. You don't think about the background of your families when you're falling in love with someone. So then they're courting, and then into the mix come Joseph and Kate Pulitzer. So Joseph Pulitzer, I'm sure many of you know, was a famous newspaper baron in this time period. He was a Hungarian immigrant. He actually fought on the Union side of the war couldn't speak English when he came to the United States, uh, but quickly becomes fluent, is you know a wonderful writer, and climbs up the ranks. I believe he starts in St. Louis and becomes a famous newspaper owner, fabulously wealthy beyond uh, probably his wildest dreams. And he marries Kate Davis, who is a distant cousin of Jefferson Davis from Washington, D.C. Um, 
they become, because of the Davis connection, they become supporters of the Davis family, and they become very good friends with Winnie and invite Winnie on all kinds of trips with them. Winnie becomes the godmother to one of their children, and Kate and Winnie become best friends. Kate is her social sponsor in the North. She's sort of like the scarlet to uh, Winnie's Melanie. They're, Kate is very, like loves her clothes. She's always dripping in diamonds and ostrich feathers and inappropriate places like at Mount Vesuvius. She's wearing this and her feathers get burned and you know it's I mean this it's really you re and this was from the Museum of the Confederacy from a diary they had. I was like this is unbelievable. This is just so cool. So anyway I, I could kind of related more with Kate in some ways but um, but Kate is also naughty and she has an affair with one of the staff at Joseph Politer's The World newspaper. Joseph is a super hypochondriac. He wanders the world on his yacht, doing his work and looking for cures. And at this point, he's practically blind. And they offer to take Winnie on a you know, spa cure trip to Italy. And then Verena inexplicably asks Fred to go over and meet them, to really to push the engagement. But can you imagine going in the 19th century with your fiance, not your husband, on a trip with a blind chaperone and the other chaperone is having an affair? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I was telling my mother this morning, I said, why couldn't they chaperone my beach week in 1988? I would pay them. It would have been so much more fun, but... Anyway, they are truly the worst chaperones ever, and Winnie and Fred on this trip in Italy, I mean, they could have done anything they want. There are all these accounts of them going out in the carriage alone by themselves, doing whatever they want. Nobody's paying any attention. So there, have been, so there has been some speculation that Winnie might have gotten pregnant, had a child, left the child in Italy. All not true. You'll, you'll have to read my book. I mean, I lay it out. We will never know, but I found no evidence of that. I think she behaved herself. I think her parents had done a good job, but one will never know, and it certainly would not be due to the Pulitzer chaperonage that she stayed on the straight and narrow. I wish she had taken advantage of it, but I don't think she did. So without going into, you'll have to read the book to find out, but this wonderful romance, these two young people are very well suited to each other. There's so many, so many wonderful um, conclusions we could have had. And in the North, they were very pro-reconciliation. Uh, in the South, Confederate veterans have a fit when this engagement is finally announced in public. It's kept private for a long time. Uh, they threatened to shoot a mini ball through Fred's heart. This was the, I won't even name the company, just in case any, you know, if anyone's in a membership for this, but one of the um, Confederate veteran companies threatened to shoot him. Um, many death threats, and even the Davises got horrible letters about this from people like Jubal Early, who was really a venomous snake, and he really did not like Fred. He, he didn't really like women. He was very, he's known as the watchdog of the Confederacy, and he was also the watchdog for the women. He did not want Mary, uh, Winnie marrying a Yankee. That would just have been horrible. So Winnie um, becomes very ill, distraught, very stressed out, 
Um, Verena, though, is the one that eventually calls this engagement to a halt, not Jefferson Davis. That is the popular belief. Davis really liked Fred, but Davis dies in 1889 when they're on this Italian trip. Um, then, of course, all the attention goes to that, to his death, and then Winnie and Fred's um, engagement is eventually called off. And I'm not sure, you know, with Winnie, I, I have some thoughts in the book about watching her parents' marriage, too, and thinking, do I really want to get into this? Maybe not. So some of it, I think the majority of it was the opposition from Confederate veterans and her parent, parents' friends. Um, I think some of it, though, is she may be psychologically, maybe she didn't really want to be married. But you'll have to read the book and, and see what you think. Everyone, people may have different conclusions about it. But Verena, finally, Fred comes to Beauvoir to talk to her, and she basically ends the engagement for Winnie while Winnie is up in her room. She sort of ends it. Um, so I must point to Verena as the culprit. But life goes on. <clears throat> Fred becomes a very successful patent lawyer in New York, and Winnie, as her consolation prize, <clears throat> she gets to be queen of Comus in New Orleans. So... This is one of the crews of New Orleans, which still go on today. They have these fabulous parties. I still want to get invited if anybody wants to take me. I really want to go. I want to wear that outfit, too. Um, I don't think they'll let me. It's actually in New Orleans. Uh, it used to be at Galatois, and I think now it's at the, um, it's at the Confederate, Confederate Memorial Hall has it. She had beautiful jewels, a scepter, and a crown, and New Orleanians thought maybe she might find a new boyfriend in New Orleans with all these Confederate um, sort of descendants and conf sons of Confederate veterans that lived there. But alas, Winnie, as you can see, still has her melancholy expression. These parties and clothes just don't mean a whole lot to her. So it, whereas many of us would just love being feted like this, it, it really didn't appeal to her. She really felt like, you know, this was just not really her gig, but she did it to support her mother and her dad and their, his memory to support um, the Davis legacy. And so she is queen of Comus. The theme is Nippon, land of the rising sun. This is when trade starts opening up with the Orient, and you have just beautiful embroidered clothes. And apparently there was a 17-year-old girl whose father said, you may not, I will not let Winnie Davis walk behind you. The 17-year-old girl was going to be the Queen of Comets, and she was removed, and Winnie got her clothes and got her place. And this sweet little girl, just her whole life, would never talk about it. She was very um, discreet but um, she was moved aside for Winnie. So that was kind of a big deal. There, it was very unusual to have a non-New Orleanian ever get this gig. Mm -hmm. Then I talked a little bit about uh, images of women in the Victorian age, and I'm, I'm a docent in Des Moines at the Art Museum, and I had loved my time there, and I studied a lot about 19th century art because that was just a particular interest of mine. You always see, starting with Whistler, there's a famous portrait of his sort of flame-haired mistress in this wonderful white dress, and it's popularly known as the woman in white, or the girl in white. Um, and this reminds me a, a bit of that portrait, again, the virginal, ethereal, 
sort of what we would call um, the true woman, the cult of true womanhood, which you have during the Civil War and even before, where women are submissive, they're very pious and pure, they wear white. Uh, Winnie's favorite color was really dove gray, so she favors these very neutral colors and very simple styles. And she really embodies that whole artistic concept of this new woman, or the true woman, and, and that sort of wraith-like look. Um, in the 19th century, it's also known as the nervous century, so you get that whole, the concept of stress finally comes in, that they call it different things, and everybody gets to go for the cure in Europe and the spa, which I still keep hoping will happen to me sometime, but my husband says, no, that's not gonna happen. But um, that, So Winnie, she really fits the times in terms of her looks, uh, her seriousness, she's very, kind of has a spiritual feel to her. And for the Confederate veterans, they really, she belongs to them. She is their ideal woman and she is an icon of the Confederacy, though she was born at the end of the war and really doesn't doesn't understand it but she you know so often that's true you become um, an image for something that you may not even understand and in her case she certainly certainly did so I'm not going to tell you the whole story because then you might not read the book but she comes to a to an early end uh, she is known by Robert Penn Warren the poet as the last casualty of the lost cause I would say she was not the only last casualty of the lost cause. Her ex-fiance, Fred Wilkinson, uh, there's a story about him at, at her funeral where he he's crying in the back of St. Paul's Church. There are numerous accounts of this. I like it. I think I'm going to go with that. Whether it's true or not, I put in the book this story may be one of those sort of legends, but it comes up in a number of accounts. Um, he dies at 55, um, he has a nervous breakdown, and he dies of a heart attack in Atlantic City. He never marries, poor Fred. It ruined his reputation too. So, so you know, really I think Winnie and Fred are, are, they are among the last casualties of the lost cause of a South that was not ready for reconciliation. And what's so interesting about Jefferson Davis is he really preached reconciliation. He really wanted people to move on. Um, and many in the North saw this match between Winnie and Fred. It could be a great step towards reconciliation between North and South, but people just were not ready. And that's why I thought this story was so interesting because these two young people are sort of emblematic of um, a period of time where people just were not ready to move on yet, particularly in the South. So I like to remember Winnie though, instead of, of thinking about her tragic demise. Um, she went in, I mentioned Joseph Pulitzer earlier, she and her mother in the 1890s, they moved to New York. They become, both of them writers, Joseph Pulitzer gives them a stipend to write for the world newspaper. They live in the theater district. Winnie writes two very well-received novels, and she's on her way to becoming a, a real author, writer, a real literary figure in New York. And this is tragically cut short. But I do think her real dream was to be a writer. That was more important to her than marriage or children or any kind of domestic life. And she did achieve that. Um, she was sort of on the verge of 
going, going from that cult of true womanhood, the true woman, to the new woman, to the Gibson girl. And she loved bicycle, bicycling on her bike in Narragansett, Rhode Island, where she and her mother went for vacation. So I like to remember her as a writer and an author and a Gibson girl just whizzing around Narragansett, Rhode Island on her bike. That, that is how I like to remember her and her impact. So thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to do questions. Delightful presentation. Oh, thank you. Um, was there any connection between Winnie and Wilkinson after she moved to New York? Excellent question. There, there have been, there's so much speculation about that, and I have run across some accounts that they ran into each other one time at a dinner party for the Pulitzers, and that they both ducked under potted palms and kind of ran away from each other. So um, that's the only, and that even that story is, is speculative. So they did not have any contact other than maybe a passing glance at that party. Good question. Uh, was not Jefferson Davis imprisoned in, in uh, Hampton for what, one, one year, two years? Yes, you're right, yep. And how did Winnie, was in response about that? Yes, oh, that's a, another good question. He was imprisoned for several years in Fort Monroe, um, right here in Norfolk, and are near to us. Winnie was the only child that was allowed to visit him, and he has a great, Jefferson Davis has a great letter where he calls her the only ray of sunshine in my life at that point. She was a great comfort to him in prison. The rest of the children were not allowed to visit him. So they did, they had, a, Davis and Winnie had a very special bond, um, for really for their entire lives. So that, that is a good question. Yes, yes, I just wondered if there was any information on how she uh, got the name Winnie. Oh, yes. Oh, that's a good, oh, great question. So Winnie is supposedly an Indian name, meaning bright and sunny. And what's interesting is Verena, um, Jefferson Davis called her Winnie. That was his pet name for Verena. Um, but there's another a great quote, and I have it in my book. It's one of the titles of my chapters that says, my name is a heritage of woe. And that's what Verena says about her name, Verena, and the diminutive Winnie, that she hopes that this name is not going to bestow bad luck upon Winnie. She hopes she will have a better life. But if you read the book, you'll see what happens. Thank you. No other questions? Oh, great. When she died, did they all die before? Yes, she, okay, so Verena, and I should go through the children for you. There's six children. There are four boys and two girls. So all four of the boys die by the age of 21, which, I mean, even, even in the 19th century, and we know obviously we didn't have antibiotics, penicillin, anything like that, but even then that was unusually high. So we have Joe with the balcony. Samuel Emery was measles. Jeff Jr. was um, yellow fever in Memphis, and Billy was diphtheria. So imagine, and I talk about you know Winnie and Verena being sort of codependent, but 
I, I would be in the nut house if I had lost four children. So you've got the four boys that are lost, and when Verena dies, she outlives Winnie. Margaret, Maggie changes her name to Margaret or goes back to the more formal name. She leaves the South and ends up in Colorado Springs. So Margaret is far away. That's really her only child who survives. Margaret Davis is the only one that marries and has children, and that's where the descendants come from, all from Margaret and Addison Hayes, her husband. So when Verena dies, the only one left is Margaret. Can you amplify a bit about how Davis acquired Beauvoir? Yes. Oh, yes. Another juicy, delicious story. So, I mean, it was just so much fun. It was like reading the People magazine of the 19th century. Unbelievable. And knowing the Davis descendants, they all are like, oh, yeah, it's a good story. You're going to find out a lot. So, um, and they've all been so cooperative. So Beauvoir, so this is in Gulf, near Gulfport, Mississippi. It's actually in Biloxi. I saw a lot of you in this row have actually been there. It's a beautiful kind of Greek revival cottage. Sarah Dorsey is this ardent Confederate admirer and authoress. I love her title. She calls herself an authoress. Um, and she was a, a very, you know, wonderful writer, very intelligent. She actually went to school with Verena Davis for a while. She offers Beauvoir as a place for Davis to write his memoirs. Verena is in Europe. Uh, Davis moves into Beauvoir, not literally with Sarah Dorsey, but on the property in a cottage. And Verena finds out about this in England in the newspaper and is like, excuse me, what is going on? And Sarah Dorsey helps Jefferson Davis write his memoirs, kind of his secretary and helper. And Verena has a total meltdown, as I think is appropriate. She refuses to come to Beauvoir to live. Um, eventually, Davis convinces her to, and, and Sarah Dorsey disinherits her entire family and gives that property to Davis, which does look a little suspicious. Um, if you look at Sarah Dor's, Dorsey's portrait, I don't know. You'll have to see what you think. It's all in the book. But um, Beauvoir, though, to correct one thing that people think that is not true, Jefferson Davis actually paid in full for Beauvoir. He did pay for it. But Sarah Dorsey eventually gives, them, gives him everything. So it's sort of a wash. And then um, conveniently for Verena, Sarah Dorsey dies of breast cancer very shortly after Verena arrives back on the scene. So then they're in possession, finally, of somewhere for, him, for them both to live. Um, and Winnie, not Verena, when Davis dies, uh, Sarah Dorsey leaves the property to Winnie, not to Verena, which all you can just speculate. I'm not going to say anything, but uh, a, a very good question. Um, great talk. Thank One short you. Quest question. Uh, you mentioned her funeral at St. Paul's. Was that yes. the St. Paul's in Richmond? Oh, indeed it was. Oh, yes. And it, it was a huge spectacle. It was, um, some historians say it was the biggest, it was a military funeral, and it was the biggest one that a woman in the 19th century South ever had. And they were doing things like at Hollywood, they were planting palmettos on her grave. I'm sure that lasts about two seconds in Richmond in the winter, but... Um, they, it, crazy amounts of flowers, and then you have Fred crying in the background. It's like the perfect Victorian ending. And I wasn't going to tell you the ending, but, you know, that part is really good, so. <laughs> Other questions? Okay. Um, hi. 
Uh, I just wondered, what is the difference in ages between Winnie and her siblings? Okay, yes, good question. So Margaret is um, her sister, the only one who lives, is much older. She's about nine years older. And then Samuel and Joe die before she's born. Jeff, at the point when Winnie arrives, I believe is seven. And then Billy would probably be like five. So they're kind, that's kind of the, the age spread. Um, and then, you know, Margaret is so much older than Winnie. She's almost like acts like an aunt to her eventually. And they're separated by geography and distance. So, so that's kind of the age spread.